read Matthew 5, 20 to 48, we're really going to be looking at Matthew 5, 20. For in verse 20 we read, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus said, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a critical verse, for he's talking of entering in the kingdom of heaven. And it's not just about being in the kingdom of heaven, which he's just dealt with in the previous verses, but entering, or more specifically, not entering. This is what excludes you from the kingdom of heaven. But how do we enter the kingdom of heaven? Before we look at what excludes us, what is the way by which we can enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, basic to Christianity is forgiveness. The kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of forgiveness, not merit. Christians belong to the kingdom of the forgiven, not a kingdom of the meritorious. Being a Christian is not being moral, is not being rewarded. Being a Christian is being bad and forgiven. The way to heaven is Christ's death for my sins and for my sinfulness. Yet the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of righteousness. For Jesus says in verse 20 that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Must. Or we do not even enter the kingdom of heaven. And remember the scribes and the Pharisees were moral, upright guardians of of Jewish righteousness. So then Christianity is about righteousness. It is about ethical and moral performance. But how do we put these two things together? A kingdom of forgiven sinners? A kingdom of the righteous? Whose righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees? They seem opposites. They seem contradictory. As we are forgiven or as we're righteous, which is it that we're to be? Is entry by being forgiven or is entry by righteousness? Is exclusion by forgiveness or righteousness? Well, one classic way of bringing righteousness and forgiveness together is to say that Christ is our righteousness. For we are clothed in his righteousness. As the great hymn says, Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty are, my glorious dress. I don't stand before God on the last day in my own righteousness. I stand in his righteousness. Or later on it says, Oh, may I then in him be found, robed in his righteousness alone, faultless, to stand before his throne. Now, this is theologically true, but it has nothing to do with the context of Matthew chapter 5. Jesus is speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount to his disciples about being fishers for men. Another classic way of resolving the tension between the kingdom of the forgiven and the kingdom of the righteous is to see that the righteousness demanded by Jesus is the counsel of perfection that will drive us to our knees and to the cross to find the forgiveness as the means for entry into the kingdom of heaven. So as I read the Sermon on the Mount and I hear of God's great high perfect standings, I recognise my sinfulness 
and I turn to the cross for forgiveness. Again, it's true of the Sermon on the Mount. It does uphold such a standard as to drive us to our knees. And when people say, oh, look, I don't worry too much about Christianity, I just keep the Sermon on the Mount, you know they've never read it. For nobody just keeps the Sermon on the Mount. But again, it's not the point of the Sermon on the Mount. The context here points us away from that kind of resolution. For Jesus was telling his disciples how to fish for men. He was training his disciples and he was teaching them that their righteousness must indeed exceed the Pharisaic righteousness. The forgiven sinners, the repentant dwellers of the kingdom of heaven are to have a righteousness that in this world's terms will seem excessive. For it will exceed the Pharisees who were the most excessively righteous people. Now, we know of the Pharisees as hypocrites and failures. But the disciples and Jesus' contemporaries knew of the Pharisees as legal experts committed to law-keeping righteousness. The disciples and Jesus' contemporaries knew them as the very epitome of law-keeping. So, as we read this passage, you've got to exceed the Pharisees. We say, oh, yes, well, that's easy enough. The Pharisees are always hypocrites. Because the only place you and I ever read about the Pharisees are here in the Gospels. And every time they appear in the Gospels, they always appear negatively. So it's easy for us to exceed the Pharisees' righteousness. But put ourselves back into the first century. And what Jesus is saying in verse 20 would have seemed outlandishly ridiculous. So while it is true that our righteousness must be found in Jesus, and while the Sermon on the Mount does arouse guilt and lead us to find forgiveness in Christ crucified, it's also true that our kingdom dwelling means a new righteousness of a changed lifestyle, a new standard of righteousness that in this world's terms will seem excessive because it will exceed the most legally righteous moral nitpicking lawyers that have ever walked the face of the earth. Because Jesus uses the Pharisees as the counterpoint of his new excessive righteousness, we need to understand the Pharisaic principle of righteousness. The Pharisees and the scribes tried to be righteous. They wanted to be dwellers in the kingdom of heaven. So what was their problem? Well, firstly, a little background on who were the Pharisees. They don't appear at all in the Old Testament. This is the first uh, mention of them in the uh, Sermon on the Mount and only the second mention of them in, the, in Matthew's Gospel. And Don Carson from the Expositor's Bible Commentary wrote, The Pharisees were a non-priestly group of uncertain origin, generally learned, committed to the oral law and concerned with the developing of halakha, the rules or conduct based on deductions from the law. Most teachers of the law were Pharisees. And again, the Pharisees adapted the laws to the times and were effective leaders. The problem is that their minute regulations made ritual distinctions too difficult and morality too easy. The radical holiness demanded by the Old Testament prophets became domesticated 
preparing the way for Jesus' preaching that demanded a righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees. These were the law keepers who scoured through the scriptures to try and work out how to apply the law to today. It sounds like a noble and right venture to be involved in. But in the process, what they did was they domesticated the law. They made it something that you could keep, even the parts that you couldn't keep. The Pharisaic principle of law-keeping righteousness can be neatly summed up as the minimum requirement method. People are endlessly complex creatures, aren't we? Not only deceptive but self-deceived as well, aren't we? Even when we want to do the right thing, we do not want to do any more than we have to. We do not want to do anything more than the minimum requirement. And so we devise the rules that specify the minimum requirement, rules that we think we'll be able to keep. Let me try and illustrate it from the current world for you for a moment or two. Uh, we used to have here, I don't think I've seen it around lately, a, a government anti-litter campaign. Do the right thing. In other words, put rubbish in the bin. Or we would say, put your rubbish in the bin. But we would know that it didn't mean put other people's rubbish in the bin, did it? I mean, if I dropped a paper, I would go over and pick up my paper and put it in the bin. I'm not going to pick up your paper. Your paper's dirty. I'm not going to have anything to do with that. The law doesn't require that. It only requires me to put my paper in the bin. Or when we went to school or university, the teachers required us to write an essay on one of the following five topics. You'd look at the five topics and you'd try and work out which was the easiest, which was one that you'd already written an essay on for another subject already and had the notes and had read the books already, which was the one that had the shortest bibliography. And as you wrote it, you counted the words over and over again to make sure that you didn't waste too much energy by going beyond the word numbers that you wanted to. When you got the essay title like that, you didn't say to yourself, oh, there are five good topics here. I wonder if I wrote on all of them, whether the, the, the teacher will mark them all and let me do them. And this one's such a good topic, maybe I could find a bigger bibliography and maybe write more words on it. And that is, I was never in school or university to learn. I was always there to find the minimum requirement necessary to pass. 52% was 2% wasted effort. You didn't need that to get on to the next course and to the next level. Or the government may ask us to lodge our tax return or to pay a tax bill by the last day of the month. And so we lodge it or pay it on the 30th or the 31st. We never say, oh, gee, why don't I send the money in a bit earlier? Well, only help the government to have the money earlier in the accounts there. So I'll send it on the 15th or I'll send it in on the 20th or the 12th. That never crosses my mind. And when I'm filling out my tax form, I'm not saying, gee, I wonder if there's more ways I could pay for the taxes because we do need better schools. We do need better roads. We do need better rails. We do need better hospitals. We're all good at complaining why, what's wrong with these things. Maybe if I gave the government some more money, we'd have better things. No, that's not how we fill out the tax form, is it? We are constantly looking to how we can minimise the tax that we are going to pay. Because in our hearts, we don't want to pay any tax. 
Now, here is the heart of the Pharisee. It's common to us all. We want to be law-keeping, but at the same time, we don't want to do what the law says. Especially, we don't want to do what the law says if it's going to cost us or inconvenience us in any way. And so we read the law looking for the loophole. We read the law minimising its requirements for us. In principle, we want to live under the authority of the Bible, under the Ten Commandments, under the Sermon on the Mount. But in fact, we don't really want to. We don't want to do the things the Bible says. Jesus shows the inadequacy of the Pharisaic principle of minimum requirement with six illustrations, each contrasting what has been said of old with what he says. And so we see it's listed in our Bible with little headings on each of the paragraphs, anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, each of them saying, you've heard what it was said of old, but I say to you. Now, in the coming weeks, we'll look at these issues, but today, let me just illustrate the general principle with the first two quickly. Firstly, there's the killing one. The commandment is simple. You shall not murder. It's in chapter 5, verse 21. It comes from Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, where actually the Hebrew says you shall not kill. But what is meant by the word murder? You see, murder is wrongful killing. But when is killing wrongful? Is killing in war murder? Is capital punishment murder? Is assisted suicide murder? Is euthanasia murder? Is leaving somebody to die, like the thousands we do in Africa all the time, is that murder? Is abortion murder? Is manslaughter murder? Is killing somebody while drunk driving murder? Is self-defence murder? Is wailing murder? You see, once you say you shall not murder, the Pharisaic mind, which is looking for loopholes, has an endless number of questions by which we can redefine murder so as not to include the activity we've just been engaged in. At one level, it's very simple, you shall not murder. But at another level, where do I draw the line? How do I define the words? It can become incredibly complex. Or secondly, there's adultery in verse 27, you shall not commit adultery, quoting the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, verse 14. But when is adultery adultery? What if we're engaged... Is there a difference between fornication and adultery? What if neither of us is married? What if we're cohabiting? What if we're of the same sex? What if I'm not married but the other person is married? Am I committing adultery or just them committing adultery? What if you don't actually have genital intercourse? You know, the Bill Clinton, I never had sex with that woman excuse. What if we're both divorced and remarried? What if one of us is divorced? Is that still adultery? Again, you see, the commandment's very simple. No adultery. It's just two Hebrew words. No adultery. 
But yet there's an endless regression of fine distinctions and qualifications and exceptions from people who think that they are just kind of sorting out the requirements of the law but are using complexities in order to minimise the law's requirements upon them. Now the contrast to the Pharisaic principle of minimum requirement is the Jesus principle. And it has two elements to it. The first is Jesus himself, for he keeps saying, but I say to you, verse 21, verse 27, verse 32, verse 34, but I say to you, but I say to you, but I say to you. He doesn't enter into casuistry, into this kind of legal discussions and fine definitions. He doesn't quote other authorities, but Rabbi so-and-so says, but Rabbi so-and-so says, this Rabbi says that, and that Rabbi says that. He doesn't bother with that. He just shocks his audience by his blatant declaration of the truth, the self-evident truth. This is the teaching with authority. It's mentioned at the end of chapter, the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. The second element of the Jesus principle is his methodology of maximum application. I mean, it is the exact opposite of the Pharisaic minimum requirement. Instead of the hypocrisy of looking like you are law-keeping while trying to minimise its requirements and find every conceivable loophole, there is the sincerity of looking for the widest, fullest, most extreme applications and implications of the law so that you can keep the law to the maximum. If in your heart you do not want to do what the law says, but you feel some obligation to conform to it, or at least socially be seen to be conforming to it, you will, like a Pharisee, seek to minimise it. But if in your heart you want to do what God wants you to do, if you want to do what God the law giver says, then you won't want to miss out on anything that he may mean. And so you will maximise the law's implications. So, do the right thing equals pick up rubbish. Anybody's rubbish, everybody's rubbish, wherever you see rubbish, pick it up. Doesn't matter who dropped it, that's an irrelevance, pick it up. Not only your own, but others, and especially the dirty stuff. When it says do one of the five essays, well, you study all five topics. You may wind up only writing one of the essays for marking purposes, but you'll recognise that the teacher has said these five topics are really important topics to know. And so even though you mightn't write for qualification purposes five essays, you'll certainly read them all because you want to learn. You want to know more. And when you come to lodge your tax return by the end of the month, well, you lodge it as early as possible, looking for every possibility to contribute to the welfare of the community by giving more tax than they're even asking for. I've yet to meet the Australian who is like that. I have met the occasional student after 30 years at the university who did study more than his own subject. Uh, I, I met them both. But the, one, the taxpayer who actually wants to pay more tax, I'm still waiting to meet. 
But let's return to Jesus' illustrations. When the commandment says no to killing, it wasn't just talking about the act of plunging in the knife into the heart, strangling the neck with the rope or with the hands or bashing the head in with a blunt object. It was talking of our attitude towards others that would lead us to take their life. It was talking of our anger or insulting or despising of others. Look down to verse 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. For the actual killing is only the final full expression of the anger and hatred and despising that is within our hearts towards this other person. I mean, that's why anti-vilification legislation is correct. Though it's ultimately impossible to ever legislate effectively because you can't legislate people's minds and people's hearts, let alone their tongues. It's a nonsense to want somebody dead but to feel morally righteous because you haven't actually done the deed. Simply haven't done the deed because of lack of opportunity or means or courage to put your hatred into action. And so you say, well, I've never killed anybody. I've wished a hundred people dead in my times. You should meet my boss. You should meet my next door neighbour. You should meet my... There's all kinds of people I wish dead, but I've never done it. Rather than being murderers, rather than being angry, the disciples were to keep the law by being peacemakers, being reconcilers. Verse 23. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. Go, first be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. See, Jesus is still working on you shall not kill. But he's teasing out the application of what that law really means. He's concerned with the spirit of the law, not just the spirit in opposition to the letter, but the spirit as it actually expresses itself in the letter. The spirit of the law worked out in applying the letter and applying it to all of life. We, we'll look at this passage next week under Are You in Dangers of Hell? That's next week. But let's just keep the principle of minimum application in contrast to maximum, minimum requirement in contrast to maximum application. Let's look at the adultery case. See, again, Jesus is not concerned with the subtle different definitional issues by which the casuistic mind of the Pharisees minimizes and avoids the law. Jesus goes straight to the heart of the matter, our lust our inappropriate attitude towards others that give rise to all matter of wrong action. When the man looks in order to lust, he's already committing adultery in his heart. There's no point priding ourselves when the reason for our innocence is lack of opportunity, fear of consequences, lack of courage. There's no innocence when our heart's desire, dreams and fantasies are the exact reverse. Notice the seriousness with which Jesus underlines the point in verse 29. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to go into hell. Our sexual sinfulness is not something to tolerate within ourselves. It's not acceptable, even if it's known to no one except God. So when you first hear today's talk title, Are You Excessively Righteous? It sounds as if you're supposed to answer, well, no, not excessively, just reasonably righteous. I mean, we're not excessive anything, are we? No one wants to own up to being excessive. Excessive by definition is wrong, isn't it? But Jesus brooks no lowering of standards. He insists on a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees who were the human paragons of righteousness. This is indeed a counsel of perfection that should drive us to our knees in repentance and seek the Lord for forgiveness. For we've all sinned and in our various ways, our futile, puerile attempts to hide our sinfulness by clever word games or by cover-up and lies, by leaving no intangible evidence of our sins, doesn't fool God for a minute and shouldn't fool us. Do you need forgiveness? Well, of course you do. The great news is that there is always Christ's righteousness. He is the one who kept the law from the heart. He is the one who paid the penalty for your guilt and mine. He is the one who can clothe you with his righteousness so that we can stand before the God and judge of all the world in the name of the righteous Lord Jesus Christ. Have you got that righteousness? I know you haven't got the perfect righteousness. I know that you need forgiveness. But this righteousness, is it yours? Are you standing in Christ's righteousness? Because without it, you will not be in the kingdom of heaven. But if you are standing in that righteousness, if you are in the kingdom of heaven, well, then you've got to take on the kingdom dweller's righteousness as well, of which the Sermon of the Mount is here talking. It's not perfection but it is the desire for perfection. It's not achievement, but it's the heartfelt, active pursuit of perfection. It's not minimising God's word, but it's the longing to put God's word into effect in every part of your life. It's not theoretical, but it's to be seen in your good works that will bring praise to your Father who is in heaven. It's being reborn by the Spirit of God so that the law of God is written on our hearts that we are desperate to fulfill his law in every possible way. This is the opposite of the formal law-keeping of the Pharisees, the Pharisees of Jesus' age, the Pharisees of our own age, those who do not want to do what God says but feel some kind of obligation to comply and so do it by minimising the requirements. Friends, what about you? Are you perfect? No, we all know that you're not. Are you standing in Christ's righteousness? I hope you are. But if you're not, ask us about how you can be forgiven by his death. If you are, then you must be born again. And that means a changed life. 
a changed life where Jesus is your Lord and Master. And therefore, from your heart, you will seek to maximise whatever God says in his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for every good gift that you give to us, but above all for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the righteousness that we can have in him, the forgiveness that you declare, the justification that we who are guilty can stand before you pardoned. We thank you for this, Father, and pray that each person here this day might know of this forgiveness and this righteousness. But knowing it, Father, we pray that we would put it into application in our lives, seeking out your word, that we might obey it in all ways. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.